Welcome to the Missio Day podcast. Missio Day is a family of Jesus, joining God as he makes all things new in Chicago. Check us out online at missiodaychicago.com. Well, we've already talked a lot about COVID-19 and suffering, um, so we're going to turn it to a lighter note and talk about the devil, the wilderness, and temptation this morning. Um, just kidding. But if you, if you weren't here earlier, I introduced myself. My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just uh, thrilled to be able to speak with you all this morning. Let's, let's go ahead and jump right in. In October of 2016, Netflix released the first episode of season three of the series Black Mirror. Anyone seen it? In this uh, episode called Nosedive, the, the show depicts this dystopian world where people can rate each other from one to five stars based on every interaction that they have, which it, eventually their rating will impact their economic and their social status. You can tell we need a new projector, but you can kind of see here um, the person is, is getting their coffee from the barista. Great latte art, um, I might say. And he looks really happy and nice guy, so she's going to give him maybe a four-star. He's got a 3.7, almost 3.8. But that's, that's the world that's, that's depicted in, in Black Mirror. It's kind of like how we use Yelp or Google reviews for businesses. They, they rate one another, and those with the highest ratings have access to a really good life. And those with the lower ratings, well, as you can imagine, have it pretty bad. Um, the main characters, as you would guess, eventually become incredibly obsessed with their ratings. They spend countless hours trying to perfect their image as they seek approval from others. And while the show is a bit exaggerated, here you can see you know, people are just constantly on their phones rating and, and trying to post pictures to make their lives look wonderful. And of course, it is a little bit exaggerated and, and kind of dystopian, but I think the writers of this show are onto something. I think they're pointing out a fatal flaw in this culture and in ours, an obsession with image, an obsession with celebrity and social media. Um, tragically, I don't think we're that far from this dystopian world that's depicted in Black Mirror. Most of us, many of us, are driven by a desire to prove ourselves worthy of acceptance and love from those around us and ultimately from God. We may believe or we may think that others accept us and that God loves us, but when it comes down to it in the most painful and difficult moments of life, we find ourselves striving to find acceptance, to prove ourselves, to earn love. Um, that's why Maya Angelou, the great American author and civil rights activist, said this, I believed that there was a God because I was told it by my grandmother and later by other adults. But when I found out that I knew not only that there was a God, but that I was a child of God, when I understood that, when I comprehended that more than that, when I internalized that, ingested that, I became courageous. I think like Maya, we all want to become courageous. We all want to be the kinds of people who can truly love one another and serve them out of the overflow of our own belovedness. But how do we move? How do we move from just believing or thinking that God loves us or that others love us? And how do we truly internalize it? How do we, how do we learn to really, like Maya said, ingest it, know it in our bones? 
Well, today we're going to take a look at the life of Jesus, and I think we'll see uh, a really interesting pattern. Um, We're a few weeks into a series on the Gospel of Luke. Throughout the season of Advent for four Sundays, we looked at everything that happened before Jesus was born, right? And then on Christmas, churches around the world celebrated the birth of the Messiah. The last few weeks, though, we've been noting how little the gospel writers tell us about the early years of Christ's life. There's there's very little information, at least in the scriptures alone, about, you know, the, the, the very early years of, of Christ after he was born. I mean, Luke, he does show us Jesus as like a young 12-year-old preteen uh, in, the, in the temple. He was discussing with the priests and leaders, and they were amazed by how well he knew the scriptures. But, but then they kind of all fast forward to Jesus in his 30s. They kind of skip those, those years. Um, we just don't have a lot of information. But what we do know, what we do know is that around age 30, Three events happened in the life of Jesus, and they were extremely important events. Here they are. A baptism with belovedness, a wilderness temptation, and the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Those are the three events that almost every gospel writer picks up with after the birth of Jesus. I got a new water bottle for Christmas, and I really like it. It's been hard to find the right one. Uh, But baptism, wilderness, ministry. The baptism is where Jesus received his identity as the beloved of God. The wilderness is where Jesus internalized that identity as the beloved son of God. And the ministry is where Jesus lived out his love for others with courage, right? So next week, we're going to talk about that beginning of Jesus's public ministry, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy for Jesus to preach good news to the poor. Uh, last week, we talked about the baptism, so I want to refresh us on that. But today, we're going to talk about the wilderness, right? Encouraging the wilderness. Um, let's refresh ourselves on the baptism. So last week, we, we learned about the baptism of Jesus. This is the first of those two events that would catalyze the rest of Jesus's public ministry. Here's a quick reminder of the story, okay? Jesus was in the Jordan River being baptized by John, and the Holy Spirit descended like a dove upon Jesus, and he heard the Heavenly Father speak these words over him. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Jesus, himself fully God and fully man, was reminded that he is the beloved. He was reminded that his father loves him and is pleased with him no matter what, no matter what he does, no matter what people say about him, no matter what, he is the beloved. In fact, I I didn't know this, but the verb that is used in, in that statement, with you, I am well pleased, the verb for being well pleased, is a, it's a timeless verb. It's not based on now or later or the past. God the Father was not only pleased with Jesus in the moment he was being baptized, but he always has been and always will be pleased with Jesus. This is very good news, not only for Jesus, but for us. And, and here's why. We are loved with the very same love that the Father has for Jesus. The same voice that calls Jesus the beloved Son of God is calling you and calling me a beloved daughter or a beloved son of God. 1 John chapter 3 says it pretty simply. 
See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children. The same words that were spoken over Jesus in his baptism have been spoken over us. You are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. So what what comes after this baptism with belovedness, after Jesus receives this love? What what is going to happen next? I think we might expect that after having this intimate experience with his father, Jesus would um, you know, immediately praise God or, or go into the, the streets and preach the good news of the gospel or, or maybe just like dry off and go have dinner after that, whatever you, you would do after uh, a baptism, right? But Jesus does something completely unexpected and I think we often miss it. Jesus doesn't praise God in that moment or preach the gospel or go have dinner. Jesus Im- immediately goes into the wilderness to fast. Let's return to um, our passage for this morning. Verses 1 and 2 of our passage say that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. So immediately after his baptism, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus leaves the Jordan River and goes into the wilderness to fast. Why the wilderness? Why fasting? What what is the connection here? Is there a connection between the baptism of belovedness and, and the wilderness of temptation? Well, I think if the baptism is this moment all about receiving the truth that Jesus is the beloved son of God, then the wilderness is the proof The wilderness is proof that Jesus is beloved no matter what his life circumstances are. Because in the emptiness of the desert, the loneliness of solitude, the physical exhaustion from starving and fasting, where where else could he find love, right? Where else could he receive God's love? Is Jesus really beloved if he has nothing at all to show for it? I think the wilderness shows us that Jesus' identity cannot be found in anything except God's love. Not food, not friends, not not a good job or an easy life without trials, nothing but the Father's love. Because when the emptiness of the desert may be making Jesus's life feel meaningless, you ever feel that, that meaninglessness? It's actually strengthening him. It's strengthening him for the day that he will give up everything he has, even his life, on the cross, right? While the solitude and silence may be making Jesus feel painfully lonely, it's strengthening him to rest in God's love when eventually every single one of his followers and friends will leave him or betray him. It's that that fasting, that hunger that that might be starving and exhausting Jesus' body, it's actually strengthening his spirit. It's giving him the power to resist temptation even as he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. I think, to put it simply, Jesus learns to rest in his belovedness in this moment by wrestling with his belovedness. If he can rest in his belovedness in the the lonely, empty, exhausted wilderness, then he can go on to live his identity as a beloved child of God anywhere that God takes him, even the most painful, most difficult moments of his life. This is good news for us Because I think like Jesus, we can't fully rest in our identity as the beloved until we wrestle with it 
in the wilderness. You know, sometimes I think we choose to enter a wilderness space, but oftentimes I think life just forces us into it. Inevitably, we all face moments. We face seasons that are marked by a deserted wilderness, emptiness, meaninglessness, exhaustion. Here is where we come face to face with our belovedness, and we must choose to wrestle with it. You might know you're in a wilderness when you're thinking or feeling things like this, right? These are the thoughts that might be in your head. I thought God loved me, but my friendships or my relationships aren't as deep and meaningful as I thought they were before the pandemic. Or I thought God loved me, but my career just really hasn't panned out the way I thought it would. Or I thought God loved me, but this whole church thing or this small group thing just really doesn't feel the same during the pandemic. I want to connect with God, but I don't feel it anymore. What is it for you? What are the thoughts or questions that fill your mind that make you feel like you're in a wilderness? How would you fill in this statement? Think about it. If God really loved me then, how would you fill that in? For some of you, I know in the past I've felt this. If God really loved me then, I'd be in a relationship or I'd be married by now. If God really loved me, then I'd find that job I've been looking for since college. If God really loved me, then parenting would be easier or my kids would be better or turn out the way I want them to. How would you fill in that blank if God really loved me then? Because the reality is that we may never receive that thing that we're looking for that will make us feel like we're actually loved. We may never receive it. We may never get that dream job. We may never get married. Our kids may never become who we want them to become. Welcome to church. I hope you showed up for some good news today. Um, It's just the reality. And rightfully so, we we end up feeling a void. We feel um, a meaninglessness. We feel an emptiness. It's, It's painful. It's difficult. It's an empty place of exhaustion. That is the wilderness. That is the wilderness. And I think in that deep sense, when we do feel this wilderness or this emptiness, I think many of us are tempted to fill the emptiness. It's hard for us to live with emptiness. And so naturally, we want to fill it with something that will give us meaning, something that will give us acceptance, something that will give us love. And I think Jesus ultimately was tempted in that same way. Jesus was tempted to fill the void by proving himself worthy of God's love because every temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness was a temptation to prove himself worthy of God's love. So I want to return to our text. I want to look at each of the three temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness. And I promise I won't talk too long on each, just a couple minutes on each of the three temptations. Um, But I think we'll see when we look at them, while they're each slightly different, at the core, each of them is an appeal. It's a temptation from Jesus to prove his belovedness. So uh, I have to admit, when it comes to the baptism and the temptation of Christ, I've been really, really influenced by a man named Henry Nowen. What a lovely man Henry Nowen was. Um, Henry was a Dutch Catholic priest. Uh, he was a professor. He was a writer. He was a theologian. He, he wrote and spoke on a number of really important topics related to Christian uh, living. He, he, he wrote on psychology, spirituality, social justice, community. Um, he taught for almost 20 years at 
really, really good universities like Yale and, and Harvard Divinity School and Notre Dame. Um, but what's interesting about Nouwen is after teaching in the academy at, at Yale and Harvard and so on, he ended up choosing a, a slightly different path with his life. He actually went on to work with people who had intellectual or, or disabilities, um, like developmental disabilities, at a community called La Arche in uh, Ontario, Canada. And if you know French, I probably said that wrong. I'm sorry. La Arche, something like that. Um, but uh, anyway, one of Nouwen's most famous books is called Life of the Beloved. Um, highly recommend this book. Um, Life of the Beloved is really all about some of the things we've been discussing, right? Questions like, how do we truly embrace our identity as beloved children of God, especially in the midst of the wilderness? How do we resist temptation to prove that we are worthy of love and just rest and receive it from God? Uh, now it helps us to see why it can be so difficult to embrace our belovedness. He says that like Jesus, we are all tempted to prove our belovedness in three different ways. The first is by what you can do. Another word for this is power. Sorry, another word for this one is success. It kind of sounds like power too. Um, but the second one is actually power. It's, it's by what you have. And then the third one is by what others say about you, popularity. And here's something interesting that Nouwen does. He links each of these three temptations for success, for power, for popularity, to the three temptations of Jesus. Let's look uh, at each of them one by one for Jesus and for us. And let's start with the first temptation for success. Let's return to our passage. Verses 3 and 4 say, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. So we look at this temptation on the surface. It seems to be about food. Right? Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, so obviously he's, he's very hungry. Um, at that time, scholars would have said, and, and even today a lot of scholars believe, you can really only live, you can only survive 40 to, to 50 days without any food, and that's if you have a lot of water. So I think it's more accurate for us to say that Jesus was starving. I mean, starving to the point of death. If you're like me, you're familiar with the word hangry, and Jesus would have been hangry, like the hangriest you've ever been to the nth degree. That's how hungry Jesus was. That's how weak physically Jesus was in this moment. So, of course, it's at that moment of weakness that the devil tries to tempt him. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Now, of course, Jesus could turn a stone into bread. He's God. He has that kind of power. But, but he has been willingly fasting for 40 days and nights, and he intends to finish strong. Jesus knows that beneath the surface, this temptation is not only about food. He knows the devil's trying to get at something a lot deeper than hunger. He's trying to get at the heart of what Jesus has been wrestling with for 40 days, his identity his identity as the beloved son of God. I mean, look at, at, at the devil's first word. If you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Prove that you are the beloved. So the deeper temptation that the devil really puts before Jesus is, is really a temptation to prove himself, to prove himself worthy of love based on what he can do. 
And again, Jesus was God. Not only could he have satiated his starving body, but he definitely could have displayed his power to Satan. But instead of doing that, and I think there's wisdom here, Jesus chooses to say no to his hunger and rely on something even deeper and more real than his desire for food. Jesus responds with scriptural truth. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. In that very moment, Jesus is living proof of that truth. He has literally been feasting. He's been living not on bread, but on the words of God that were just spoken over him 40 days ago. So while he may be physically starving, he is spiritually full because he's been feasting on the words of the Father. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. No proving, no defending, no if you are the son, just you are my son. Jesus knows who he is. He's been chewing on these words, almost like Maya Angelou said. He's been internalizing and ingesting them, meditating on what they mean as the foundational truth of his identity. And I think inevitably, you and I, we will all face the same temptation that Jesus faced. Satan may not show up to us in the wilderness and tell us to turn stones into bread, but he will certainly tempt us to question our identity as beloved children and try to prove ourselves worthy of love. As Nowen says, this is the temptation to root your identity in what you do. What you do has, has such a high value in our American culture. I mean, think of how much time and energy we put into experience. Could be professional experience in our careers, cultural experience like travel or going to a new great restaurant or entertainment experience like sporting events or concerts. I mean, many of us are chasing the next big experience. Our identities end up being tied to what we do or what we have done, and not only that, but especially if we do it well. We're not only driven to experience, but we're driven to success. And I want to be clear, success, experience, these are not bad things. In and of themselves, they're, they're wonderful, they're beautiful, they can be very good, but, but when our culture places so much value on it that we root our identity in it, that's when it becomes a, a, a problem. And the question we have to wrestle with, I think, at the end of the day, is am I trying to fill the void of the wilderness with experience or success? Because when our identity is just based and rooted in that, we will constantly be chasing more and more. And, and look at the last two years. The reality is this can all be taken from us in any moment. It can be taken from us like that, right? We have to be rooted or our identity can just be stolen from a pandemic or an economic crisis, from losing your job, whatever it may be. So that's, that's temptation one, and that's the longest one. Um, but we're going to look at the second and the third temptation as well. Let's look at the second one for power. Verses five uh, through eight, let's look at those. Here's what it says. The devil led Jesus up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will be all yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So with this temptation, I think we see both the risk and the reward grow dramatically, 
right, from turning a, a measly stone into a piece of bread to worshiping the devil in exchange for all kingdoms of the world. But I think the devil isn't so smart on, on this one. First of all, he doesn't even have the ability to give Jesus that promised power. And secondly, this invitation is so blatantly obvious as idolatry that I don't think it would be that hard for Jesus to ignore. You know, it may not have been so clearly a sin for Jesus to turn a stone into bread. I mean, he was hungry. He could do that. Probably not wrong, right? But for him to worship Satan and bow down to him as an idol is, is pretty clear disobedience to God. Um, Andy Crouch, who's written a number of, of great books, he was uh, an editor at Christianity Today, and now he's on the board at Fuller Seminary. He wrote a book called Playing God, which is all about idolatry and power. And I think this quote from Andy Crouch is, is really, really powerful. He says, all idols begin by offering great things for a very small price. All idols then fail more and more consistently to deliver on their original promises while ratcheting up their demands, which initially seemed so reasonable for worship and sacrifice. In the end, they fail completely, even as they make categorical demands. In the memorable phrase of the psychiatrist Jeffrey Satinover, idols ask for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. So on the surface, this, this temptation, this second temptation, it looks like idolatry, but underneath that, I think Satan is really asking Jesus to give him everything for nothing in return. Despite Satan's lack of, of tact, you know, he, he didn't really try to persuade Jesus too well. I still think that resisting this temptation would have been difficult for Jesus because he knew ultimately that the power was his anyway, of course, but this must have seemed like a pretty good shortcut to glory, right? He wouldn't have had to spend the rest of his life as a, as a homeless itinerant preacher with a relatively small following only to eventually be crucified at the hands of the Roman Empire. I mean, Satan was offering him all that authority right that instant. But Jesus, again, amazingly, uh, chooses to root his identity, not in, in Satan's temptation, but in what God has spoken over him. He knows that he is loved, even when he appears powerless. And he knows the word of God. So Satan responds to the second temptation to the tune of the first commandment. He quotes Deuteronomy when he says, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. This harkens back to number one of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. So rather than fall into this trap of idolatry and this false promise for power, Jesus chooses to follow God and receive his power according to God's will for his life. He rests in his identity. But again, I think we will inevitably face the same temptation. Although it may not be as obvious as it was for Jesus, we will face the temptation for power. We may not be offered all authority in all the kingdoms of the world, but Satan will offer us the little kingdoms of our own lives. To return to that quote, uh, that quote from Andy Crouch I, I read earlier, anything can become an idol. Anything that we offer meaning and value to that, that just can't deliver 
on what it promises to give us in return. We get this false sense of power, right? I, I don't know about you, but I've often think things like this, all right? When I get that new car, my life will be so much easier. When I can finally afford to buy a home or in Chicago, a one-bedroom condo, <laughs> then my real life can begin, right? Then I can start putting art on the wall and get that record player I've always wanted. When the, here's an even tougher one. When the candidate that I like gets elected, then I will be happy and secure. Now, don't get me wrong. These things can improve our lives. They matter. Don't, I'm not saying they don't matter, but, but they will ultimately fall short. They'll ultimately become an idol when our identity is rooted in our need for them. When they continually ask, like that psychiatrist said, for more and more while giving less and less until eventually they demand everything and give nothing. So that's the second temptation, the temptation for power. Let's look at the third temptation, the temptation for popularity. We're going to look at verses 9 to 12. The devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Here, again, I think we see Satan's temptation get more and more complex. After bringing Jesus to the highest point of the temple, Satan returns to his initial prompt, if you are the Son of God. Satan wants to remind Jesus what has been at the heart of this whole thing, proving himself as the beloved. He goes on to make the final temptation. Now, I think Satan does something interesting here. It's almost as if he has learned a thing or two from Jesus. So in this temptation, Satan tries to convince Jesus to jump from the temple by, by doing what? By quoting scripture. He, he quotes two verses from Psalm 91 as a way of highlighting that if Jesus jumps, God will send angels to catch him. It's almost like you can see Satan thinking, you know, look, Jesus, I know the Bible too. How can you say no to the very word of God? I'm, he's trying to give Jesus a taste of his own medicine, but thankfully, um, Jesus is the word of God, capital W, and so he knows the lowercase word of God as well. Jesus knows that, that Satan is completely misusing Psalm 91 here and manipulating it to serve his own purposes. I mean, we all know the devil will go to great lengths to try to persuade us and try to persuade Jesus. He, he's not afraid to manipulate and misuse scripture for his own purposes. But again, I think underneath that, this temptation, yes, it's about testing God and seeing if he will send angels to, to catch Jesus if he jumps. But again, I think there's something underneath that, something deeper. And to see it, I think we have to look at what it would have really meant if Jesus actually jumped from the temple. So um, if we look at the highest point of the temple, uh, at, at that point in time, this was Herod's temple. Why, why does Satan lead Jesus to that point? What, what, what's important about that? Well, the pinnacle of, of the temple was, was the highest point in, in the whole entire city. It's the place where priests would go multiple times a day to get everyone's attention and remind them to pray. It was visual, 
public, well-known place for the religious Jews at that time. I mean, not only was it just really high up, it was like the center of the city, a very central location for crowds to get. There was always a crowd gathered there. So if Jesus would have jumped, he would have been seen by a huge crowd, right? He would have had so much attention, and people would have been amazed to see this spectacle, um, especially if angels would have, would have saved him, which we know probably would have happened. Um, so simply put, yes, this is a temptation to test God and God's faithfulness, but more than that, it's a temptation for fame, for acclaim, for instant popularity, it, like the second temptation, it's, it's a temptation for a shortcut to glory, right? Jesus could have just, get, just jumped and gained this, this huge following, but he knows there's a better way. He's devoted to the slow work of God. He's devoted to a simple life, just proclaiming the good news, offering his life in service and obedience to God. There's no shortcut to that. Of all the three temptations, I think this may be the most prominent in in our culture, for many of us at least. It's a temptation for fame, for popularity, for rooting in our identity in what others think about us or what they say about us. We feel good when others like us, when they need us, when they say nice things about us. But we're immediately crushed when we're spoken of poorly. Our lives can become this endless spiral of seeking love an approval from others, a nosedive, if you will, like the Black Mirror episode I mentioned earlier. How can we truly rest in our belovedness without needing the affirmation of others? Again, I have to say this. There's nothing wrong with popularity, success, power, being loved. These are all all good gifts from God. But at the end of the day, even our closest friends Even our closest loved ones will eventually let us down. Think about it. The people who have the most love for us also have the power to wound us the most. Those who are closest to us, our parents, our children, our siblings, our teachers, our mentors, our pastors, our church leaders, they have the potential to hurt us the most. In this world, love and wounds can never be separated How do we live with that kind of reality? I think we have to wrestle with it. I think we have to wrestle with the truth that that even then our first love is speaking words of love over us, even with nothing to show for it. We are beloved sons, beloved daughters of God. Now, I owe, again, so much of this to Henry Nouwen, that wonderful man. And a lot of this comes from three sermons that he has on YouTube called Being the Beloved. Um, These are some videos from the early 90s when Henry was speaking at uh, uh, the place called the Crystal Cathedral in Los Angeles. And I went back and forth. They're they're pretty low quality. I mean, they're early 90s quality videos, so you can guess what that means. But um, I just had to show one. I just felt like the picture wasn't enough. So I just want to show you. It's a minute and a half, and this is pretty much the end of of our time today. But I want you to see that um, Henry really knew what it meant to live as, as a beloved child of God, even when the world, um, in many ways, despised him. So let's listen to what, what Henry has to say. Every time you have temptation, you're bitter, you're jealous, you lash out, you feel rejected, and you go back and say, no, I am the love of God of God. And even 
can't wait to hang out with Henry in heaven. It's going to be so fun. I, like, everything he says is like one long run-on sentence for like 17 minutes, but it's just so, so good. Um, so I don't have much to add to what Henry said, but to close, I just want to ask us, which of these three temptations resonates with you? Is it for power? Is it for success? Is it for popularity? Is it just one of them specifically that has nagged at you your entire life? Or do you go through seasons? For me, I oscillate based on, based on the season. Sometimes it's popularity, sometimes power. It just depends. I think these temptations most, most prominently come to us in those wilderness moments, but they come at us in every moment of life. We look at the final verse of our passage, verse 13. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The devil is always looking for opportune times to tempt us, to tempt us to prove that we are worthy of love rather than simply resting in our belovedness. But thankfully, we have a high priest, a great high priest, Jesus, who was tempted in every way that we ever could be, every way, every way that we ever have been. And he, he's with us. He helps us. He comforts us. He advocates for us in moments of temptation. And Jesus shows us that if we wrestle and rest in our belovedness, we can be free to proclaim God's love wherever we go. Let's pray together. God, we, um, we thank you for these moments in the life of Jesus that, that not only prove that he is your beloved son, but that prove that he is worthy of all praise and glory. He became one of us, a human, tempted, uh, tempted to prove himself worthy, tempted to, to prove himself worthy of acceptance and love. And he showed us, he not only modeled for us a different way, but he became the way for us to reject temptation and rest in our identity as your beloved children, no matter what. Help us, Holy Spirit, to receive that, to wrestle with it, to rest in it this morning and in every moment of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. We love to keep the conversation going. Find a weekly gathering or gospel community in a neighborhood near you. To find out more, check us out online at missiodechicago.com.